seated. What an awesome time of worship. That was awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Good morning, saints, and welcome to the family room of the rock. It is truly a privilege to bring the word this morning. As I came in this morning, I was, it was just on my heart. I want to extend a thank you to everybody, and there's a handful of them here that were involved. Tom was up here leading worship. He was involved at the very beginning of this church. Jill was up playing keys. Jerry's over here. There's a whole, there's a spattering of you out here that were a part of this church being founded and founded on the word of God and the gospel of truth. So, so thank you. Thank you to every person that was a part of this rock church starting. Because if it would have never been founded, we wouldn't be here today. We spent, <clears throat> we spent the last couple of weeks looking at what it means to be saved or born again. The title of the teaching was, What Must I Do to Be Saved? And it was good. It was a blessing to me to share it. I believe it was a blessing to several of you that I got the opportunity to speak with afterwards, just to kind of clear it up a little bit, what it means to be saved and what our part in that is, to believe. This week... We're going to begin having a conversation that I believe is in season is certainly something that I am still learning to walk in. I want to clear that up right at the very beginning. I am learning this, what we're going to start talking about today. And also, I don't want any presupposition that we're going to finish this today. It's going to be a little while. We got a little bit we're going to look at, but it's going to be really good. I think, I think it will bless us. Um, kind of as a, as a start to this, before we get into it, I want to share just a little bit about doctrine and how we establish doctrine. Um, one of the things that in Christianity, so when we read the Bible, I had a conversation with one of you this week, and we were talking about if, the, if our walk of faith doesn't look like what we see in the Word, then I don't really want that. I want to focus on what we see in the Word, and I agree completely with that. Where, where we see the issue, we'll read the book of Acts, maybe on Sunday morning we'll read a story about a lame man at the gate called Beautiful and and. Peter and John take him by the hand and they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. They pull him to his feet and as, he, as they pull him to his feet, his feet and ankle bones receive strength and he goes walking and leaping and praising God and that preach is awesome, it's fun to preach, but where everyone, where we always struggle and where I think Christianity has wandered to the point where we are today, where most Christians think miracles maybe could happen but it's just a maybe could happen. Well, how many of you know that if Peter and John had that maybe it could happen mentality, they sure as Sam Hill wouldn't have prayed for him or they wouldn't have commanded him to be healed. And we know they wouldn't have taken a hold of him. They might have said, you know, be healed in Jesus' name. We're going to go into the temple now and maybe if your feet work, we'll go in together. It's not looking good right now, but maybe in time, you know, the Lord Jesus is going to teach you something sitting here and this is going to work out, going to be good and you know, and maybe somebody will bring some food along and we'll pray for you. You know what? We'll call the prayer chain. They would, that would have been maybe their thought. But they had absolute certainty. And the way we know that they had absolute certainty is they were willing to pick him up based on their certainty. Now, don't nobody pick up a lame person unless you're certain of the solution. You're, you're going to be a criminal if you, do, if you do that and you're not certain. And you're stepping out and it's like, ah, you know, it could happen. So what happened from then till now where most of Christianity were like, 
I, you know, I don't know. Maybe we don't see it. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. And I got, I, I just want to clarify this. We started shooting our doctrine off of our experience. We began drawing up doctrinal statements with caveats. We began saying things like that was then, but this is now. And saying, well, I'd love to preach healing, but I've prayed for somebody to be healed and I didn't see it happen. So, well, let's make that a doctrine then, that it was then and not now. And for generations, this is how we've built doctrinal. Now, it wasn't that simple. Hear me out, church. I know that it was not. Church history is never that simple. It was not that simple, but that's ultimately what took place, is we saw what was in the Word of God, we looked at our experiences, experiences and we said, there's a discrepancy here. Let's make our doctrine somewhere in between. And again, it was not, those words weren't spoken, that's been the sum result. And, and I'm guilty of this, church, because I'm, I'm guilty of taking things in scripture and like, I don't know if I see that in my life. I don't know if I've ever seen that in someone else's life. Maybe that's not what he meant. Maybe that's not the truth. Instead of saying, what the word of God says is true if I never see it. If no one I ever know has seen it, if it's in the word of God, contextually accurate, I'm not talking about ripping things out of the context and making a bumper sticker religion out of it. I'm talking about contextually understand what took place, what did Jesus mean, what did Paul mean, apply it to the context, to the, from the author to the audience, understand it, and if it says it in the word, that's the doctrine. Immovable on that. And it gets difficult when you start looking at history. And I, I shared, I got to share with Tom this morning a little bit of what the Lord's been doing in my life is just really trying to pull me away from establishing doctrine or, or even allowing doctrine to stand based on the last thousand years of human history or Christian history. That's not doctrine. Just because people may have not seen it for 1,500 years if the word of God says it, it is true. We shoot doctrine not based on circumstances. You look at the word circumstances and it comes from a couple of words, it's real easy to see. You don't have to be an English major, do you? What's the first word? Circum. Circum. Anybody? This, it's the circumference. Thank you for the, it's the circumference around. So you take a person, you stand them in the middle, and what is now stance? Anybody seen a fighter's stance? They're ready to engage. So the things that have a stance around us, this isn't rocket science and you're not in English 101, this is the year before 101. Circumstance, what's surrounding us? That can't be where we draw doctrine. Our doctrine's got to be above that. It has to come from the word of God and the word of God alone. So all of the patriarchs that we read about in the Old Testament, when God gave them a word, we'll use Abraham for an example because he's one of my favorite examples. When God gave him a word, he did not look at the circle around him and see this is all the things that are around me. Okay, definitely not a father of many nations. 
So maybe God meant something different. We're not signing checks to Abraham. We'll sign him Abraham, or we'll sign him Abram, but we'll do the little Abraham thing with God. We'll just leave that in the spiritual thing, because maybe it's just in the spiritual that that's true. How many of you know that preaches pretty good for a man with no kids? The Lord called me to father many nations, and I think he meant spiritually. No, Abraham's like, well, God said this, so that's what we're going to call me. But I don't have any kids, but that's what God said. And he elevated the word of God above the circumference of things that had a stance against him or towards him. It's like, well, his word's up here. All of these things, this barrenness of Sarah's womb, this, uh, we, you know, we don't even have a land. We're just kind of wandering around. And, but he said he's going to give me a land and father of many nations. I'm going to take his word at it, and I'm going to start signing checks. Abraham, father of many nations. These patriarchs took the word of God. Joseph's another example. God gave him a word, and he's like, that's just the word. And his circumstances were like, no. In fact, instead of going up, you're going down. Joseph had this revelation. He had this, he got a dream that he was a, a leader and a ruler and all these things were bowing down and he was supposed to be a leader and supposed to be a ruler. And then he shot off at the mouth about it. And what happened? Instead of going up from little, you know, however many in the line of kids he was all the way up, he starts spiraling down, thrown in a pit, almost killed, sold into slavery. Well, from slavery, things got better, didn't they? Wrongfully accused and thrown in prison and wrongfully accused by the highest echelon of society. So there wasn't like it was a peer thing where it's like, well, another servant said that you did this, and we accused, and it was like, maybe he'll get out in a couple of years. No, he was in prison. That was the end of the story for Joseph. We, you say, well, you're reading into that. You don't have to read real far into human governance to understand that if the highest people condemn you, you're toast. It's like you're going to prison, and that's where you're going to stay. So his life was not following the word that God gave him. Can anybody see that? This might seem like kindergarten church, but I'm just, his life was going like this. Not just down, it was spiraling. Like, you're going to jail and you're probably going to die there. That doesn't look much like the dream that you had when you were 17. But he took the word of God and it, it had a place in his life that was higher than the things that were surrounding him, the circumference of his life, and the things that had a stance towards him. As believers today, the word that we are barely going to start, it may, it may look for us right now like, well, yeah, we're kind of walking in that. But, you know, the word that I'm going to share this morning, if you preach it in the wrong century... In the last 2,000 years, it's like, well, what, is the word of God a liar? Because that didn't measure up. That didn't add up for them. And so I've shied away from this word. I've, I, Tom asked me when I walked in, he's like, how long of a word do you have this morning? I said, take all the time you want. I don't really want to share this right now anyways. <laughs> just because, and I'm not, it's not that I don't believe it. I'm just struggling to share something, and I'm, the Lord's really been drawing me into preach the word, what the word says, and let me sort the rest out. Don't let, we must allow the word of God to determine our doctrine, not our own history or experiences, and not even the history of the world. 
That's where it gets hard. Like, we're pretty comfortable with separating our own experiences from doctrine. But then people are like, oh yeah? What about the people in the Colosseum that were eaten by lions? Where was God's hand of protection there? So maybe God's hand of protection doesn't work. It's like, we can't draw doctrine that way. We have to draw our doctrine, our understanding from the word of God. Regardless, I mean, what the Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith, Trey, is sin. Faith is believing something we have not yet seen. We preach that, but then in actual practical doctrine, it's like, well, if, you know, if we don't see it, we probably shouldn't preach it. And we don't see everything happening, it's like, well, we probably shouldn't preach it. And I know this body is big and strong in this. I listened to the, the others that teach. Pastor Don's joined us this morning. He's, he's established this in his heart. Valerie has shared depths of this stuff, believing something that you maybe, your natural eyes haven't blinked and seen yet. Trey has shared this. Jerry has shared this. Tammy has shared this. Tom has walked this and shared this. I mean, like, it's just, we're big and strong in this. I'm just being, I want to kind of lay out a little preclusion to this that our doctrine is shot from Scripture, from the Word of God, not from our experiences. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. We're going to read through this, and then we're going to kind of back up and talk a little bit. Therefore, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you? Tell me something. He's asking a question. Which of you, it's rhetorical, but by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles." There's a lot of things in this. We're not gonna, we're not, this is an exhaustive thing I share with you. Every time, we, every time I preach, I want you to know that I'm not preaching exhaustively. I'm not telling you everything there is to know about this passage. There's a couple little things that I wanna draw out. The first thing I wanna look at, and we're not gonna be here real long, but verse 30, now if God so clothes the grass, grass of the field, which today is, tomorrow's thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? There's this misconception in Christianity that the only way we access things and we just talked about it a little bit, it's by faith. So, if you don't have anything, you need more faith. Now we know, we've talked about this, that we've been given the measure of God's faith. We don't have a lack of faith. We're not asking God, Lord, give me more faith. Although singers sing about it and preachers preach about it, we have enough faith. So then we say, well, maybe we're not using it enough. 
We should get it out and use it because clearly Jesus says, will he not much more clothe you if you have enough faith? I think I read that wrong. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? God's promise of faithfulness to us for provision is not a faith thing. We have to believe it, but he's not saying, if you need something, I'll give you more of it if you have more faith. His promise is to care for us. His promise is to clothe us in our little faith condition. This is good news. I, was, I rejoiced when I rest. Thank you, Jesus. Now I finally feel, and Tom talked a little bit about this, but now I finally feel in my heart the Holy Spirit's like, so you can receive too. Do you get that? Does anybody, it's like, oh, you have little faith. He'll clothe you of little faith. I can receive. I can receive that. That's good news, church. There's a couple other things. Back up to verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do not worry. We talked, oh, it's been two years ago, we started kind of discussing, the, and it's been longer than that, but we really looked, and we saw it globally in the last two years, that the currency of our day is fear. The currency that we walk in today, like everybody says, well, we're on the gold standard, or we're off the gold standard, we're on the dollar, we're you know, buying oil on the dollar, we're buying oil on the whatever, you know, all these different standards. All of that is just distraction. The actual economy today functions on the currency of fear. Who can be more afraid, and if you can make enough people afraid, you've got buying power. Fear is buying power today. Or rather, if you're a marketer, fear is selling power. Can I get an amen? Maybe an oh me. Look around. It's like, if you can get somebody afraid... What is all the commercial? I mean, half the commercials on TV are based on you being, we got to get you afraid. Maybe you've got this thing. But here, you know what? No worries. We've got something to sell you that'll fix it. It's, my marketing 101 is create the problem and then fill the need. This isn't marketing class. But fear is, fear is the currency today. And in the last, initially, when the whole pandemic broke, it was just flat run fear. Just fear, I mean, it was just as fast as they could slice it, man, it was walking out of the store. Fear, 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 fear. Now here in the last little while, fear's kind of grown some legs of its own and it's fleshing its hand out. It's like, yeah, you know what? You can be afraid. We could, we'll do the whole fear of catching something and dying immediately. And I'm not trying to belittle any of that. I'm just talking, just hear me out here. But now, let's add something to it. Let's a little spices. We'll sell some. What about fear of economic failure? That's a good, we can add that as a side. We could do the fear of getting sick and dying, and then we'll do a side of fear of economic failure. We can do fear of national security. Fear of international problems. Fear of local security and local problems. Fear of your church not growing. Fear of your business failing. All of these fears, it's growing legs now. And it's really fleshing itself out. It's like, we can just be afraid of everything. Fear that you can't get something. Anybody have that? It's like, well, I can't get those parts anymore. I can't get that. Well, it's not available. What's your favorite thing to see when you look some up online? No longer available or out of stock. Which is the same as not available. It just leaves you with a tiny little shred of hope. 
It's currently out of stock, been out of stock for two years, but maybe the stars will align and someone will find another one and you can buy it. Just not available. Just leave it at not available. That's a side rant. But worry, Jesus says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Whew. Lord Jesus, perhaps in the first century this was possible. 2022, there's no way, Lord. This is not, this, like, you don't understand. There's so many things going on that Jesus could not have understood then. To give us this instruction, do not worry about our lives. But if you look at what he goes on to say, he clearly lays out, we don't have anything to gain by worry. We don't have anything to gain by fear. So, the title of the teaching this morning is Jesus, the Lord of the Supply. Jesus is the Lord of the Supply. The reason he could confidently instruct his followers in Matthew chapter 6 was because he knew he was the Lord of the Supply. Now, some of this was yet to be proven, but there was literally thousands of years of history that Jesus had behind him as being the Lord of the Supply. We are not going to look exhaustively into this. One of the things I struggled with this, and I shared, you, I shared with you, this has been a little bit of a, a battle in my life just to see it, to preach it, I guess, I see it, was, like I, I shared with you, the Lord said, just, let the, just preach the word, let the word speak for itself, and I'll take care of the details. And I kind of went to the word looking, this is a real very spiritual concept, maybe some of you are familiar with it, where you have an idea and you go to the Word to find Scripture to back you up. This is, that's not good, but I do it sometimes. I did it, I'm like, there's got to be some times where you just left some people hanging. Like, your children, it was like, nope, I'm not providing for them. Well, interestingly enough, if you go to the Word looking for that, what you will find is Jesus Faithful, God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful over and over and over to the point that I got a little frustrated. I'm like, I don't understand, Lord, because there's things I don't see. There's stuff that I don't see. There's stuff that I haven't seen looking back in history. And that was kind of where I got the clarity on like, I can't shoot doctrine on history. I have to shoot doctrine on the word. I got a few scriptures, and based on where we're at on the clock this morning, and I don't like to preach on the clock, but I want to get to a little bit further down here. We're going to kind of skip through some of this. I talked a little bit about Joseph. Joseph learned to trust the Lord's word as true as a young man. The story of Joseph, if you're taking notes and you want to read it, is Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. And you'll see that Joseph learned to trust the word of the Lord. It was true. Even if he didn't see it, he trusted it as true, which ultimately made way for the Lord to be the Lord of the supply for the entire world. It was Joseph taking God at his word as a young man that paved the way for God to be the Lord of the supply for all of the world. You'll see the details of that. If you're unfamiliar with that story, I encourage you to read it. I guarantee you won't be able to just read it once. It's pretty amazing. Then we see the Israelites in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 16, where God provided manna for them and meat to eat. Just what they needed every day, daily needs. God was the God of the supply. He was the Lord over their supply. He was Jehovah, the God who supplies to them. 
Now, and this is kind of where we're getting, where we're going to head with this, the manna wasn't the point. The manna, I think, would be amazing, and I hope there's some to eat in heaven. It looks phenomenal. It's like there's some sweetness to it. It looks glorious when you read about the details. But the manna wasn't the point. Canaan was the point. The promised land was the point. But the Lord, in all of his infinite wisdom, knew that if his people all died in the wilderness from starvation, there would be no children to walk into the promised land. The promised land was the point. The manna was sent by God to help them get there. Obviously, his plan was not to feed the manna for 40 years, but rather just to bridge the gap from Egypt, bondage, where the children of Israel saw their captors as the Lord of supply. This is, this is we're going to look at it. I just want to look at it. Just everybody, we could be a little bit late to lunch today, but not really late. In chapter 16 of the book of Exodus, we see verse 3, the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us to the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We see a little glimpse in that. Who was their supplier? Who was the Lord of their supply? The Egyptians. We want to be back in Egypt. They got meat. They had bread. We could have just died of old age. Or be, I mean, there's a lot of other unpleasant ways to die in Egypt. But their desire was to return where Egypt was the Lord of their supply. So what is the Lord intending to do? The promised land of Canaan where Jehovah was the Lord of their supply. What was God's promise to them? You're going to go to the land of Canaan, the promised land, where you will eat from fields you didn't plant, drink from wells you didn't dig, and drink wine from vineyards that you didn't plant and live in houses you didn't build and cities you didn't build. Who's the Lord of the supply in that scenario? Jehovah, who makes a way for them. So the manna wasn't the point, but, and this is where we'll we'll see this all through, I mean, all kinds of places in Scripture, that when, when God reveals himself as the Lord of the supply, that's never the point. There's always something else something bigger that he has to establish in our hearts that he's the Lord of the supply so you can walk with courage. You can walk with boldness into whatever God has called you into. Does that make sense? We're going to see another example of it. Elijah and the widow, and Martin preached about this a couple of, uh, I would say weeks, but may have been months ago. Passage of time is not my strong suit. 1 Kings chapter 17, 8 through 24 talks about this widow whose supply had run out. We're not reading all of these because We're trying to get, I I got something I'm trying to get to. Can we all just ride along with this? Her supply had actually run out. You say, no, no, she had enough. She had enough to make one more meal. No, her storehouse had a little bit in it, but the supply was gone. The supply is where it comes from. She just had a little jar. There was nowhere to get any more. She couldn't get any more. She was done. She was out. The supply was cut off. Her stockpile was nearly gone and her supply was shut off. But Elijah shows her a little two-step of faith and God becomes her supply. But you know, and Martin drew this out for us, that wasn't the point. Her having food was not the point. There was a little boy that got raised from the dead coming up. But this little supply thing 
She had to get to the place, and I'm not trying to make steps out of this, but she needed to get to the place where the supply thing was kind of taken care of, where she saw Jehovah as the God of her supply, the Lord over her supply. And then what happens next? Her son is raised from the dead. So do you see where I'm getting? There's this like, there's always this supply thing. We got to kind of take care of that. Then we got something else coming. Does that make sense to everybody? I'm getting energetic. I'm excited about this. I'm, I'm, we're getting there. Ruth and Boaz. Ruth steps out in faith, choosing to abide with Naomi. A little step. She chooses, like, I just feel like I'm supposed to do this. The Lord becomes the Lord of the supply for her and for Naomi. And as a result, it, that's a, that precludes Ruth marrying Boaz. And what, what happens next? They step into the lineage of the Messiah. That's way bigger than her getting a little bit of wheat to eat. That was just like, I gotta become the Lord of the supply here. I'll be the Lord of your supply. And watch this. I'm gonna put you in the lineage of the Messiah. Jesus the Christ, the Savior of the world, has gotta come through this line. Now we're gonna kinda transition and skip into this New Testament. Luke chapter five, and we are gonna read this. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's a little bit, there's some verses here, but we got time, we're at church. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him, this is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them. They were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from land. He sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking... He said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said to him, Master, just FYI, I just got to say, this is a side note, but it's kind of entertaining. You see that Peter's trying to save Jesus from looking like a fool. We know, nobody ever preaches that, but he's like, just so you know, we've been doing this all night and there ain't any fish out there. I just want to save you because obviously Jesus doesn't know anything about fishing, right? I mean, he's a carpenter and he's just sitting in the boat preaching. He's a great rabbi. He's a great speaker. But it's like, Lord, I just want to let you know there aren't any fish in this lake. So I just it's a side note, but it's entertaining because then you see he's like, I just want to clarify. There's master. We've toiled all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, if you insist at your word, I will let down the net. This way, Peter's like, he's kind of, I'm out of this whole deal. This has got nothing to do with me because we ain't catching anything. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Ah, Peter was wrong. There are fish in this lake, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came. They filled both boats so much so they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy, as it implied. Oh Lord, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Jesus developed early on in his ministry this model of revealing his lordship over the supply as a precursor to the actual mission at hand.
See, he demonstrated in this moment, I am the ultimate Lord over this supply. Exhibit A, your boats are nearly sinking. After a night of fishing where you caught nothing and I filled your boats. In this moment, who before, leading up to this, who was Peter and James and John and Andrew's supply? Themselves. Who so often today is our supply? Ourselves. My wife is looking at me with this look like, you are listening, right? Yes, I am. I'm learning to listen. Jesus demonstrated his ultimate lordship over the, over the supply. Peter, Andrew, John, and James realized that there was way more going on than a few fishes. This is imperative for us as humans because while we are recreated, created in the image of Christ, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, we're still humans. And as humans, we live in this carnal world. We buy food with real money. We work for a wage. We save to buy things. We get hungry and we need actual food to fill us. It's important that we understand the reality. It's a reality that the Lord Jesus is the Lord over our supply. Because if he isn't, I want to spend just a couple minutes here, guys. If he isn't, our supply can quickly become our life. We preoccupy with our supply. We meditate on our supply. We go to sleep reading articles about making our supply go longer, go further. We fixate, which is just to fix our thoughts. We like attach a thought to a thing, and that thing is lack or plenty. When we fixate on the supply, when we remain the Lord of the supply in our lives, our supply becomes our lives. We feel anxious, stressed. When we have lack, when, when lack is the thing we fixate on, we feel anxious, we feel stressed, we feel worried, we feel, feel fearful. Say that 10 times fast. We begin to anticipate more lack. We stray from the Sabbath rest in Jesus, and often we stray from any rest of any kind. When we are the Lord of the supply in our lives and we have plenty, we preoccupy with pride, self-sufficiency, our own shifting levels of awesomeness. And deep down inside of us, and this will get you, church, if you're here today and you're walking in plenty, but we're the Lord of our own supply, deep down, somewhere inside of us, we creep into fear, worry, anxiety, just like we do in lack. You know why? Because we can't lie to ourselves. We can lie to everyone around us, but we can't lie to ourselves, and we know we're finite. We ultimately someday won't be able to make another dollar, won't be able to produce another thing on our own. And so even though on the outside, we're just, we're flush, man, we're doing awesome. If we're the Lord of our supply, down here, there's still no peace. We're still walking without peace. 
Because as I, as I just said, we're more aware, we're much more keenly aware of our frailty than we want to say. Like I said, even if we're killing it today, if it's my ball to carry, I most certainly will drop it at some point. And then what? Jesus established in this story, I am the Lord of your supply. Now, that we've got that settled and your boats are sinking with what I've provided. In other words, what, if that's us today, it may be a bank, like you say, I don't really fish and I certainly wouldn't want to be on a boat sinking with fish. If you were a fisherman, that would be awesome. The boat's so full of fish, it's sinking. That's amazing. You might think, I don't like fish, boats, don't want to sink, that doesn't relate to me. It may be some totally different thing. It may be your bank accounts are sinking. It may be your pantry so full that the floor gives out underneath it. It might be something like that. Jesus establishes, I am the Lord of your supply. Now, come and follow me. And it's from this perspective that you see him, don't worry about what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna drink, what you're gonna wear. Countless times in scripture, we had a few other instances we were going to look at this morning. We're not going to look at those now, but wait, there's more. We'll come back another week and we're going to keep going on this because there's a few other things that I really want to draw out. Over and over and over in scripture, Jesus establishes his lordship over the supply. He is the Lord of the supply. And you may be here or you may be listening and you think, that sounds like health and wealth doctrine. I don't call it anything. That sounds like a prosperity gospel. I'm simply sharing what we see in the word. We see this. And church, this isn't once or twice. This isn't like there was that one time that Jesus provided for somebody. Let's make a doctrine out of it. It is over and over and over and over. In fact, one of the miracles, one of the only miracles that is in every single one of the gospels, all four, Gospels is when Jesus fed the 5,000. A story of Jesus being the Lord over the supply. Jesus is the Lord over our supply. This is by no means an exhaustive list. Scripture is replete with examples of God's hand of provision. This morning we just looked at a couple and not even all of them. If you wonder what the other ones were, talk to Jane. She's got a big sheet of paper of scripture we were going to look at. We will. We will get to. I just felt like these were the ones we were supposed to start with. We see so clearly in these Jesus' lordship over these physical things. And, and I, hope, I hope to have conveyed that it's not the physical things that are the point. Do you understand that? It's not the why well, he gave 5,000 people food. That wasn't the point. He was establishing, before we go any further, you need to know, I am the Lord over this area. This whole supply thing, and it starts in Genesis. We see it all the way through Revelation. Jesus is the Lord over the supply in our lives. The headline today is shortage, lack, inflation, Currency being devalued. The supplies we need are being priced out of reach. In agriculture, our inputs are going through the roof. Fuel, fertilizer, seed, they're experiencing price increases that haven't been seen in generations. 
In industry, we're experiencing stuff not being available. From raw materials to tools to equipment, right on down to good help is hard to find. The phrase of 2022 is, it's getting hard to come by. It's familiar to us today in our culture, which all of those things I just listed are a function of fear. As believers, when we receive the love of Jesus into our hearts, that love casts out fear. Even fear of lack, even fear of natural shortage, because Jesus is the Lord of the supply. Worship team, if you want to come forward, we're going to sing one more song to close this morning. I'd like to invite you all to stand with me. We're going to close with a declaration. And you might, maybe you've been here for a few weeks or a long time and you've heard this whole, like we stand and we do this declaration. Is this, this is not weird. It shouldn't be weird. It's not magic. It is choosing before we leave this place to declare over our lives what we've read to be true, what we believe to be true, the reality that we see in Scripture to be our marching orders as we leave this place. If you would, join me and stand this morning. We declare here at The Rock that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. As the Lord of our lives, he is also the Lord of our supply. With this, we declare a state of dependence on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith and the giver of all good and perfect gifts. We understand this morning that the goodness of God is not determined by our circumstances, but rather is revealed through the written word of God. By this word of God, we can declare with confidence that we are a blessed people, blessed in the work of our hands and in the words of our mouths. When we rise up and when we lie down, we choose this day to speak what the Lord says about us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood with an inheritance laid up for us. We are the righteousness of God created in Christ Jesus so that we, when we step into this world whose light is pretty dim, we can step with the light of Jesus and the boldness of a lion into our commission and into our calling this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray a blessing over this body. Amen.